From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. And welcome back to the CQ Budget Podcast. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. And joining me this week is my dream team, Lindsay McPherson, who covers the politics of appropriations on Capitol Hill. Welcome back, Lindsay. Glad to be back, David. And Paul Krawczak, a senior budget writer at CQ Roll Call. Thanks for being here again, Paul. It's great to be back. Thank you. And we've got a lot to talk about because we now have barely two weeks left uh, officially in this lame duck session, and then and Congress is trying to complete an omnibus spending package that's way overdue for the current fiscal year. But finally, after weeks of stalling, it does seem like they're making some progress. They now seem serious about cutting a bipartisan deal that would clear the way for this package to happen. So we want to talk about what the sticking points are, where we think they're headed in this deal making right now. There was an intensive week of talks this week. Uh, and we also want to touch on on where they are uh, there's, because there's been a lot of talk about trying to raise the debt limit this session and a little bit of news on earmarks, spending earmarks. So we want to get to all of that. But first, uh, let's let's get at the omnibus, guys. Lindsay, it sounds like they're they're cutting a deal with all the leadership except one of the big one of the big four is is staying out. Yeah, Kevin McCarthy did meet this week um, at the White House with the other leaders and President Joe Biden. But since then, um, he's made clear his spokesperson confirmed he's going to be a hard no on the omnibus. You know, it's kind of interesting because they don't have a deal yet. So to come out as a hard no, you know, is just indicative of the difficult personal politics he faces as he's trying to get the votes to be elected speaker in January. Obviously, Republicans are about to take control of the House come January, and they think they'll have a stronger negotiating position in general on appropriations next year. So I'm sure that's part of it as well, that they don't really want to do something now when they could potentially get more next year. He talked about right after the White House meeting wanting to cut the overall top-line spending from fiscal 2022 that... um, just ended and nobody else, even Senate Republicans want to cut that overall top line, partly because they want to Republicans want to boost the defense budget, at least on the Senate side, and certainly some in the House. But McCarthy, you know, thinks at a time of high inflation, they should be cutting spending and uh, his position just being untenable. He's already a hard no on the omnibus and probably won't be very active in the negotiations given that. Yeah, I mean, it does sound to me as though uh, McCarthy is just really scared here to back any kind of bipartisan spending deal right at the time that he's trying to corral the 218 votes he needs to be speaker in January. And he's much more concerned politically now with appeasing his conservative right flank to round up those votes than to back any kind of spending deal. And so if it means if it means punting on the spending, that's what he's going to do if that's what it takes to become speaker, right? Right. So, I mean, to be totally clear, it's very possible he would have opposed an omnibus deal even if he had the votes to be elected speaker. But for him to come out at this stage and say he's opposed to it, I think is in large part because of that. A lot of the conservatives, mostly Freedom Caucus members who are opposed to him and said are a few of them are publicly saying, others are privately saying that they're not ready to vote for him for speaker. Uh, certainly him voting for a big omnibus deal that 
potentially raise his spending and particularly on the non-defense side, which you'll need to get a bipartisan deal um, is not something those conservatives want to see happen. So um, it would certainly be a mark against him for those who he needs to win over. So it makes sense why he's taking the position he has, but it's not common for, you know, appropriators and leadership to come up with a three corners deal, but they certainly can do that. And that's probably what's going to happen here if they do get a deal, which is far from certain at this point. Yeah, I was just going to say, it, it strikes me as a little bit unusual that the top congressional leaders, all four from both parties, are usually backing whatever whatever you know bipartisan deal emerges to push it through Congress. It, it is a little strange to have one of the top four not back it, isn't it? I think so. Paul, would you agree? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that... Um, uh, the, I mean, a lot of House Republicans um, typically, uh, you know, vote against uh, these omnibuses. And, right. Uh, but doesn't the leadership normally back? I, I mean, I guess it varies over the years, but um, it is kind of striking. To be clear, McCarthy, I think, has voted against omnibuses before. But in, certainly they're involved in the negotiations and it comes down to a last minute decision on what pers- how personally they're going to vote what the overall thing is. But at this stage, it seems like he's just kind of taking a more hands-off role um, because of the speaker's race. So I, I think there is a, to Paul's point, yes, a lot of House Republicans do usually vote against this. And sometimes that includes the leadership. Um, you know, once he's in the majority, you know, a speaker doesn't typically vote on the floor. So that's, you know, as like, but minority leader he does, and he has voted against some in the past, but it, it is, it's a different dynamic for sure. I would underscore Lindsay's point that even before an omnibus is finalized, uh, McCarthy is saying that he's a no. So that, that, that's unusual. Yeah. Okay. So just to remind folks, we're talking about $1.7 trillion roughly in discretionary spending for the current fiscal year, which began, we should remind people, October 1st, they're way overdue. And we seem like they're making momentum, Paul, here, but there's still going to be a tension. We, we can't even be sure that what is the top line spending number yet, right? That's right. So the Republicans, Senate Appropriations Chairman Richard Shelby, has made an offer which would basically be at President Biden's overall top line budget proposal which is about $1.65 trillion. So that's what President Biden proposed. Um, the House and the Senate, uh, Democrats wrote their bills a little bit higher than that. But Shelby said, you know, I'm okay with what Biden proposed. But Shelby wants more for defense and less for non-defense under that total. Because Biden proposed a lot more for non-defense than Republicans want and less for defense than Republicans want. So non-defense spending is probably the biggest obstacle here. Um, Democrats want more than the, than the Biden budget proposal in reality because they know that they're going to have to go up on defense spending. And if they go up on defense spending within the Biden proposal, then they're going to have to go down on non-defense spending. And Democrats 
know that they're going to have to go down a little on non-defense spending, but they don't want to go down a lot. So we've heard that Democrats want parity. That is, they want even, they want equal increases in defense and non-defense. And Republicans have been pushing back against those equal increases because they say um, Congress has already, in the last couple years, has already passed increased non-defense spending more than it needs to be. So they want to hold down non-defense spending. So that's kind of a change, Paul, from recent years where Republicans have been the ones pushing for parity, uh, you know, equal increases in defense and non-defense as a way to pump up defense. Well, yeah, that's right. And I mean, particularly the last time they went through this exercise and they ended up with something that was sort of approximated parity. But yeah, I mean, going back, you know, the last decade, um, there's been this principle of parity of, you know, raising both equally. And so now it's it's Democrats seeking parity because they're they're trying to pump up non-defense spending and, and Republicans are trying to hold the overall top line down as a way to push push down non-defense spending. Right. That, that's right, because, I mean, Democrats wrote their bills to have larger increases in non-defense than in defense. And they also wrote these bills. They put various policy writers in these bills, which sort of, you know, the, the, in, in the past, the bills have, you know, prohibited federal funding of, of abortion and, and so on. And, you know, Democrats, you know, wrote the bills to, you know, get rid of those policy writers. And, you know, Democrats realize that they're going to have to raise defense to get Republican support. And they realize that they're going to have to you know, get rid of most of these riders as well. So they know that going in, but they want to get non-defense as high as they can. And now another sticking point here seems to be this this fight over how to categorize a lot of the VA, Veterans Administration, healthcare spending, whether to wall that off uh, from the overall non-defense spending allocation. It gets a little bit into green eye shade accounting here, but the distinction is important, I guess, because if you wall off the health, the VA healthcare spending, it leaves more room for more and other non-defense spending, you know, under under whatever allocation they get, right? Right. And if you don't wall it off, if it has to be all combined, it puts a lot more pressure on non-defense. There's going to be less room for other programs. That's the basic tension, right? And so Democrats are now trying to wall off as a separate category the VA healthcare spending. And Republicans, of course, are very resistant to that because they know that opens the door for more spending in other non-defense programs. How is that shaping up? Well, yeah, that's another um, you know, major obstacle. And Democrats tried to do this last time. They tried to wall off the veterans' medical uh, care funding, which is growing very rapidly. Um, and that's why Democrats want to <clears throat> wall it off, as you said, <clears throat> so that it is considered separately from the rest of non-defense. Um, and so Democrats in negotiations <clears throat> you know, tried to wall it off last time. Republicans would not accept it. It was not walled off. They're trying to do that again. Unclear how that's going to shake out. I think it's going to be a heavy lift for Democrats to get Republicans to agree to that for sure. But to Paul's point, it is growing. Um, it's set to be 22% more than last year, uh, you know, in terms of 
costs $119 billion they have to work with that either wall it off or put it in the, you know, lowers other non-defense stuff. So it's a lot of money that we're talking about. And it's a big issue that's holding up the talks for sure. Okay. So they've got to resolve that. And then another, another sticking point that's cropped up here is this Republican desire to remove the military's mandate for troops to be vaccinated for COVID. Well, it has, at the moment, it's currently an issue on the NDA, the National Defense Authorization Bill. But if it doesn't get resolved in that bill, then it will become an issue on the omnibus. So Republicans, mainly conservatives, but also McCarthy um, are pushing for to remove that vaccine requirement for the Pentagon. And uh, it doesn't seem at this moment that it's going to make it into NDAA. But if it does, then it's not going to be an issue in the omnibus because that's, you know, dealing with an authorization bill would cover that. But if it doesn't get an NDA, then I'm sure there'll be some effort to get that on the omnibus. Paul, uh, Rand Paul in the Senate and has an amendment on the NDA. And if he doesn't get that, he'd probably push it on the omnibus. You know, Rand Paul likes to hold up uh, spending deals and drag out time in the Senate. So that's not a good thing. I mean, Rand Paul doesn't usually get his way in the Senate, although he can delay things. And if it seems to me, if, if Kevin McCarthy is the lead advocate for re- getting rid of that vaccine mandate in the House, and he's not going to support the omnibus anyway, it doesn't give him a lot of leverage to remove the vaccine mandate in the omnibus either. So I think I, I think I would bet that the mandate stays in place, but we can't be sure, of course. Most likely, but their leverage is higher in the NDA because in the NDA, some progressive Democrats always vote against that. So if enough Republicans were to stick together, particularly on the House side with McCarthy and force that issue, they could potentially do it on the NDA. If they can't get it in the NDA, then yes, I agree. They're not going to get it on the omnibus because they have less leverage on the omnibus because more of them vote against the omnibus and more Democrats will vote for the omnibus and they won't need as many Republican votes. Okay, so where are we on timing now? Because there's there's barely two weeks left, as we tape here, um, before December 16, when when all the current stopgap funding runs out, uh, and they need something in place. Um, can this come together in the next two weeks, Paul? Well, no, probably not. Um, I mean, they've been talking for a while behind closed doors about um, passing another stopgap funding bill for an additional week. So so the deadline, the funding expires December 16, and another CR until December 23, that would give them an additional week. So I think that would give them, you know, about three weeks from now. That is not much time at all. Um, and there are, there are people who are saying, you know, they really need to agree on a framework by the end of this week to have enough time to actually, you know, write these, this 12 bill omnibus and get it passed through the house and Senate. Now, now, you know, could they not get an agreement this week and maybe get an agreement next week and still do it in time? Yes, that's, that's possible. Um, I would say that there, there is, I, I mean, people are characterizing them as fairly close to an agreement. We never really know what, what close is, and, and they like to say close even if it's not really close, but there does seem to be real momentum to 
actually get an agreement on a framework and pass an omnibus uh, before the end of the year. And even, even, you know, House Republicans who are going to vote against this omnibus, some of them will probably be happy if this does get settled this year so it, so it gets cleared out and they don't have to, and, and House Republicans don't have to try to, you know, figure this out and get it passed through the Republican-controlled House early next year. Well, speaking of um, Republicans who want to get this passed, um, our colleague Aidan Quigley talked to Tom Cole. He's a senior appropriator who certainly would want an omnibus deal. And he actually said an agreement he thinks next week would be still pretty fast based on where they are and that the week after might be more likely. So if that's the case, I mean, they they might need more than a one-week CR. They might have to go past the Christmas holiday and come back right before New Year's if they're trying to get it done this month. Um, Yikes. And it rolled Don't that out. That. I mean, I'm putting the timeline out there just based on how long it takes to write the bill. So, you know, yeah. no, I, I, you know, at this point, I, no one's talked about that. But I just realistically, we, we've watched how long it takes them once they get a total framework. Like Paul said, it takes time to write all 12 bills. I know Deloro and as Paul reported um, a couple about a week or so ago that Deloro and Leahy have been writing a bill that they hope can get bipartisan support because they know they need to get this process started. But, you know, getting an agreement and changing all the numbers and some language and stuff, like it's still going to take time. So they could be spending Christmas at the Capitol. Well, they could be, uh, but for my sake and mm. all of our sakes, I hope that if they realize how long it's going to take, they would just move the deadline to after Christmas and return after Christmas. Cause sometimes they'll do that and come back right before new year's and the new Congress, but who knows it's TBD. <laughs> okay. So still a tough slog ahead. We will follow it closely uh, as this as this wraps up. And meanwhile, we do want to touch about two other issues here that, that came up this week, um, because there had been a lot of talk from Democrats in recent weeks that they really were eager to lift the debt ceiling in advance. Uh, you know, they're not going to reach the borrowing limit until sometime mid next year. But there was a real hunger by Democrats to lift it early, uh, to just remove the the issue from the table, because they know with Republicans taking power in the House next year, there could be this whole ugly showdown over raising the debt limit and and rattling financial markets and you know risking mayhem uh, at whenever this comes up. But talk of of doing that seems to have diminished, Paul. Uh, it doesn't seem like Republicans have been receptive to doing it now at all, and time is certainly running out. Where are we? Is is debt limit something they can even tackle now in the remaining weeks? Could they stick it into the omnibus at the last minute? No, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, Democrats considered two different paths, and I mean, one would be uh, bipartisan support to raise the debt limit, and you're not going to get that from Republicans and the lame duck. And the other path would be to use the budget reconciliation process to raise the debt limit. But that would require um, adopting a budget resolution and then passing a reconciliation bill. And under the budget resolution and reconciliation rules, the Senate could, could, could pass those with a simple majority. But there, you know, number one, there isn't time to do that anymore. And number two, Democrats do not want to they would only want to do it in a bipartisan way. Um, now, the other part of that is that the um, the government is approaching the previous debt limit that was passed. 
and you know may hit that debt limit sometime this month in December. Um, and at that point, Treasury will eventually have to start using various accounting measures to provide room to continue to borrow. And those accounting measures are you know, estimated to last until sometime into next year, probably into the second half of next year. So we, we don't know exactly when the when treasury borrowing will will hit the debt limit, but probably sometime this month. And then possibly the end of this year or maybe early next year, the treasury will begin using these these bookkeeping uh, measures to be able to continue to borrow for a for a period of time for a number of months. Okay, but no action seems imminent right now, I guess on that. And then finally, uh, Lindsay, an interesting vote this week from House Republicans um, who had to decide as they prepare to take power next year whether they will now continue what Democrats began two years ago, which is resuming the practice of inserting spending earmarks in their bills, um, the favorite pet projects of lawmakers that they get to take credit for and stick in the appropriations bills. Uh, they had been banned for a decade uh, because of Republican concern about them, because of corruption cases. And so with Republicans taking power, they now had to decide whether earmarks are working. And it sounds like earmarks are here to stay. Well, at least for the upcoming Congress, um, the conference, the Republican conference, House Republicans specifically, um, voted this week uh against an earmark ban that was proposed by Tom McClintock to their conference rules. It was not even close. Only 52 members voted for the McClintock earmark ban amendment. 158 voted against it. One member voted present. So, I mean, that just tells you heading into this next Congress, there's big support for keeping earmarks. They're going to be in control of the spending bills on the House side. Um, so they, they might change the transparency rules that Democrats had some, maybe they make them more onerous. I don't know. It's, I think that's to be determined, but I think overall they've been pretty happy and feel like that the process has worked like with the, these transparency rules and the limitations that are in place. Um, and also one of their main big arguments to keep it particularly in the coming Congress is that Democrats will still control the white house and they don't want to see, see the authority over some of the spending to the executive branch when, you know, there's a democratic administration. Yeah. Uh, but it, it is nonetheless uh, a sort of a stunning turnaround from from back in 2010 when Republicans led the charge to, to get rid of earmarks. You know, there has been a, a notable shift. And the fact that the vote wasn't even close really does show the shift in momentum here um, because there were real corruption cases with lawmakers carted off to jail over some earmarks, you know, allegations of bribes and whatnot. But it does seem like they've corrected that now, and, and they resumed earmarks, but with some new transparency to them, some new guardrails that were installed under Democrats that I guess both sides feel are working, right? Uh, there haven't been any, any allegations of corruption so far, and so both parties seem happy enough to keep them, and it, it is a change in, in mindset here. What we haven't seen is one one argument for doing earmarks was supposedly it provides greater political buy-in to these spending bills and makes them easier to pass. 
I'm not sure that's been proven. <laughs> it doesn't seem well, like certainly not when Republicans are in the minority, because you can still get your earmark in without having to vote for the bill on the House side because Democrats can carry the bills. Yeah. So it'll be it will help them probably being in the majority and having to pass spending bills where they can't necessarily count on Democrats to vote for their versions of the bills. So in that case, I think that is no- another reason why the vote was probably overwhelming is it is helpful to them in a narrow majority where they're only expected to have about a four seat margin um, to be able to get the votes to pass spending bills. I, I think it can only help pass the house bills for sure. Um, and one thing I would note too, though, is, you know, I, again, in terms of the future, I don't think this means earmarks stay around forever. Um, if for example, in 2024 Republicans were to take the Senate and house Republicans stayed on, the Senate Republican conference, I don't think has evolved as much on this issue. Um, and I'm not sure they would be able to like, cause I don't think they've overturned their ban. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they still have a personal ban in their conference on earmarks. So I, you know, it might be a different dynamic if they had full control, but given that Senate Democrats will be in control and they'll probably want earmarks in their bills. I just think the dynamic in this next Congress made sense for them to keep it. I don't know that that means they'll stay around forever. Okay. At least for the next two years, earmarks are here to stay. We'll see what happens after that. That's all the time we have for now. Um, Thank you again to Lindsay McPherson. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks, David. And thank you, Paul Krawczak. And thank you both. And be sure to stay up with continuing CQ and roll call coverage of the omnibus in the next few weeks for all the details on CQ.com or rollcall.com. And we will see you next time.